Welcome back to Be Great With Nate. Are you enjoying the Be Great With Nate podcast episode so far? Are you enjoying these things that I'm bringing you through with the chakras? Are you enjoying all the things I'm teaching you how to regulate your nervous system, how to get out of fight or flight? If you are, I'm very happy to hear that. I just want to let you know that I'm not a guy who read about this stuff first and then wanted to teach people. Believe it or not, I actually have a tremendous amount of trauma. And one of the things that, that was driving me to want to learn about these things is because I had to heal myself. I had to figure out how to work with myself, with this type of nervous system, this type of brain, this type of digestive tract, the muscular system, because I was all screwed up from my childhood trauma. And for those that don't know about my story or don't know how I went from trauma living in trauma to live in my dream. What I wanted to do today is I wanted to upload my story on here for you to listen to. Back in December, I did a podcast with my mentor, Paul Check on Living 4D with Paul Check, and it was awesome. And he wanted me to go deep on telling my story, and it took me about an hour and 15 minutes to bring him through my story. And if you never heard about it or you never listened to it, um, I made your life a lot easier. You don't have to listen to anything else about it. I actually clipped it up, and I'm going to attach it to this podcast here. You can learn not only about me, which is okay and it's cool, but most importantly, you'll find yourself in this story. You'll find it, you may still be stuck in one of the levels that I was stuck at that I share in my story that can hopefully inspire you to keep pushing towards your dream. With that being said, I hope that you enjoy this story on how you can go from trauma to living your dream. Enjoy. Today, my guest is Nate Ortiz. Our topic is the wounded healer. I think you're going to find Nate's story fascinating. I know I should as hell do. And we're going to get into Nate's story and how he actually went from some really unpleasant circumstances, but used his mind very productively to create a real successful career guiding people back to health. So welcome, Nate. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Nate is a Czech professional. You're an HLC3, right? Yes. Yeah, HLC3 and exercise coach. I didn't do the exercise coach yet because I did. I just came out of doing all the... Um, Bachelor of Science of Movement Science. Right. So as soon as I came out, I was really hungry for the holistic coaching. Right. I was like, I got to get that. So Good. Well, when you're ready, it's all there. I'll take you far beyond your bachelor's degree. I promise you that. I'm pretty sure you will. (laughs) (laughs) Nate, I listened to your podcast with Sarah Rose on the Highest Self podcast, which was a good podcast. You did a phenomenal job of of, uh, expressing yourself. So I thought it would be fun to begin with to have you tell the story of your childhood and the circumstances that you came up in and ultimately, you know, how you ended up being a student of the Czech Institute. When I kind of came into this world um, facing challenges, when my mother was pregnant with me, she was hooked on uh, heroin at the time. And when I came, when she had uh, given birth to me, I wasn't allowed to actually leave the hospital for the first couple of months because they were rehabbing my liver and my body to bring out the the drugs that were in my body. Yeah. And um, there were a couple of times where they didn't think I was actually going to make it. So it got to the point where my parents actually, you know, my mom was on the streets. My dad was a drug dealer. My mom's a drug addict. And when I was, when it was time for me to go home, nobody was actually available to pick me up. Wow. So uh, they called the emergency contact, which was my grandmother. And my grandmother came and got me. And, um, you know, my grandmother, my mother's a white woman. My father's a black man. And this is at the time where it wasn't as popular as it, you know, it still can be struggles today, but it was, a, my parents went through a struggle being with each other because of making a biracial baby. So 
when it's come time to come get me, my grandmother came to get her brown grandchild. And um, when it was time to sign me out, since my father wasn't there to actually give me his, you know, sign the birth certificate, I couldn't get the last name Turner. So my mother was actually still married when she had had me with her, um, with my father. But she was, she divorced, but didn't officially divorce. I ended up with the last name Ortiz, which is a huge part of my story because when I was, my upbringing was a challenging because my parents, you know, my dad was a drug dealer, my mom was a drug addict, but I was already not sure who I was as far as not blending in as a child. I would go to the black community and I was not black enough to be black. And there's a lot of bullying that actually goes on in the black community when you're not black. Everything that you do that's good is because you're light skinned or, you know, it's an excuse on, um, you know, you don't get your credit there and you don't fit in. But then when I went with my white family, um, the good thing is that most of them were mixed with some type of Hispanic. Um, but I never felt like I was black and I never felt like I was white and I never felt like I was Spanish either. So I was like, I had to find myself at a young age. And, you know, the last name Ortiz made people think I was Spanish. So when I was, you know, growing up, I grew up in Jersey City, New Jersey. And at the time I was always moving. Um, we were all try- always trying to find a place to live. My parents were on Section 8. And uh, being on Section 8 in welfare, you, you basically move a lot because you're looking for the next cheap apartment that you can afford. But at the same time, my mom was on a, a, a program for drug addiction and my father was a drug addict who had a warrant for his arrest. So my dad couldn't get us an apartment when we were kids. I couldn't really live with him because he was on a run his whole, whole life. And my mother, she'll do good for about a couple months. We'll be living at a particular place. And then before you know it, she's not showing up for her meetings. And then Section 8 is taken away from us. So I'm living with grandma again. So I actually grew up in the projects downtown Jersey City. I grew up right on the Hudson River with the view of New York City. And um, I say when I was about like five, six years old, things got a little more rough. My mom's addiction started to increase to the point where she became abusive. It was times where I would just get beat with bats. she even tried to stab me a couple of times. And, wow. Um, yeah, my mom was very, very abusive and she took her anger out on us, you know, my brother, you know, my, my brothers and my sister. Oh, you have a brother and a sister Yeah, too? so my mom had two kids before she had me mm. and they were Hispanic. And then she had me and then two other boys with my father. And um, there were times where when we grew up, they kind of segregated the house. So we were so poor, we, we had no food, right? When the first of the month came, my mom took that money. She... She took the food stamp money and then made made a way to get cash for it. Usually what they do is if you get $1,000 in food stamp money, you trade the $1,000 in food stamp money for $500 cash. So you may, you're able to make a trade. So we'll go hungry for the whole month. And Jeez. my how did you what did you get by on? You can't my not father. eat. Oh, okay. So what we had to do is we had to learn on how to find dad. We couldn't be with dad all day because we had cops following us around Jersey City because they knew that we were going to see dad. So we had to play little tricks. Um, there were times that we'll, see, we'll meet dad at Burger King on Wednesday and dad will come by. You don't know what kind of car he's coming by in. He drops the money off. He told us he loved us. And then he went back out. Um, so that was my whole life. So we, we had to make $10 stretch for two, three days at, at a time with two little, you know, my, well, my little brother had another little brother, but my, my parents couldn't get custody of him, um, because of their record becoming worse as I was growing up. So it was to a point where around five, six years old, I, st- I started seeing abusement get really bad in my household. And to tell you the truth, 
I was so traumatized at the point where my memory, even as a child, I couldn't remember what happened to me. So I'll go to school and teachers will ask, well, how'd you get that bruise on you? Or, you know, why didn't you show up yesterday? And I, I literally couldn't remember at the time. Mm-hmm. That's PTSD. Exactly. It's very bad PTSD. So as I was continuously going, I already, I started, so I struggled with self-identity, but I also struggled with learning disabilities because when I was born, since the drugs were in my system, they created issues when it came down to my the development of my brain. So they used to tell my dad that I would never be able to live without an assistance. So when they when I was a kid, they tried to put me in special ed with a an assistant teacher, and they even thought that I was gonna you know I was gonna be autistic to the point where I'm gonna need assistance for the rest of my life. Well, they screwed that up, didn't they? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> good thing. Yeah, my father he didn't want to accept that. He did not want to accept that at all. So my father would anytime I spoke, he'll stop me since I was a kid. And he used to say, Nate, slow down your words and pronounce this word right. And I used to think, I used to feel very annoyed anytime he used to do that. Because he used to be in front of like everybody in the neighborhood, right? Like I said, my dad was a drug dealer. So when he's speaking to me, he's speaking to me in front of all the drug dealers and their kids. And I was already embarrassed that I couldn't read or write. Mm-hmm. So when I spoke, he, he would stop everything he's doing. In a, it can be a birthday party. And everybody's looking at me. My dad's making me repronounce the word that I messed up. Mm-hmm. as if he knew that I wanted to be like a speaker growing up. It was just like a magical thing. I felt like my dad was secretly just a wizard that was put in my life to guide me to be the man I am today. Mm-hmm. Because even when the times were going bad in my life, my dad was the one that trained my brain. He never allowed my brain to accept the fact that this is it. This is really bad as it is. He used to tell me, he calls me Pa. He said, Pa, someone out there got it worse than you right now. Mm-hmm. We'll get where, where we got food on our back. We found a way to get food in our mouth and we got a roof over our head. We're blessed. And it was to the point where through my childhood, it got thing, as things got worse, my mom, she, her drug addiction was getting worse until my, my sister had kids. As soon as my sister had kids, she had something to change for. She came a grandmother. Everything was going good. But then it trickled down to my sister having drug addiction. Oh, wow. So my sister starts losing her mind. She had a baby, had epilepsy, and then- my sister was charged with the murder of her daughter, which was my niece. So my sister had two boys and a girl. One was three and a half. Then we had, I think, a two-year-old and then a newborn. And my sister killed a newborn. So every day I would wake up, I watch my nephews. And then after school, I'll take care of my nephews. I was around like nine, 10 years old at this time. And now the state of New Jersey one day came, took my sister, took her boyfriend, my brother, assaulted the cameraman from the news channel. The New York News kept on coming to the house. My brother went to jail. My mother relapsed on drugs. Didn't see her for about two months after that. And then the state of New Jersey took my nephews away. So I woke up and everything was taken away from me. So it was to the point where I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life. Because I saw- <laughs> That's an early start on that one. Exactly. I was like, I have to do something with this. So every day I would go to school and everybody in the school knew what happened. It was all over the news. It was breaking news. It was on newspapers. So. People didn't want to come near me or people thought I was like a part of a killer family and all these, you know, weird things. But I had this one uh, counselor. His name was Mr. Fernandez. And he was this Cuban guy. He used to wear collar shirts with a gold chain. He had his hair coming out. And he was someone that people were intimidated by. Mm-hmm. And he came up to me and said, you got to come to my office after school. You have to speak to me. And I told him, I'm not speaking to you because my whole life I kept these things that were going home, uh, uh, basically going on at home. A secret. I don't want nobody to know I'm going through this. Everybody thought that I was this kid that just had some learning disabilities. 
and I actually transformed my pain into laughter and I became a class clown and I, I wanted to motivate my friends, but nobody knew I was going through this at home. So one day, after like two weeks of him harassing me, I'm like, look, talk to my little brother. He needs it. I don't need it. And because where I'm from is, you, you know, it's, it's, you're soft if you go talk to somebody. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not something that is, you know, um, normal in my neighborhood. Like, oh, you have to go see a therapist. Like, oh, you're going to, and you get joked on. So at the time I'm like, I'm not going to see no counselor. And then I remember one day I went home, we had no food, we had no cable. And then I went to go take a shower and the hot water's off. I can't find my mom. My dad, you know, he's, he's, he's trying to figure out how to make money to feed me and he's on the streets. And I sat down and I'm like, all right, if I don't do something about this in my life, then, my, then I'm going to end up like my sister, like my brother, or I'm going to be a drug dealer. And I used to think my dad was the smartest man I've ever met in my life. And it used, to, it used to upset me. I'm like, this man is the smartest man. I would go to school. I'll learn something about science and I'll try to come tell him when I saw him. He'll tell me everything about it. But then I'll do, he'll tell me about the law, history, how doorknobs are made. And I used to say, dad, you're the smartest man I've ever met in my life. In the back of my mind, I used to say, I want to be like my dad, but I want to do it legally. Yeah. That was the goal. That's until I met you, by the way. I, I, I was happy when I, when I came across your work and I told my dad about you because my whole life, my goal was to try to find someone smarter than him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, maybe I'm not. <laughs> I was like, Dad, I found somebody. So I came home and I took a piece of paper. I had this notebook and, I, and that piece of paper, I said, okay, on the top of the piece of paper, I said, how can I escape Jersey City? Question mark. So I started to think, well, maybe I can become a teacher. Maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do that. So then I set out the goal. And then before the, and then after I set out the goal, I took like a ladder and I made a little ladder of steps to be able to, that need to be taken care of or I need to take to be able to make it there. So one of the first things I said was like, okay, how can I go to a high school that can avoid these gangs in this neighborhood? Because mm. all my friends are in gangs and I don't want to, you know, people were getting stabbed every day. I was like, okay, how do I do that? I want to go to private school. Okay, how can I go to private school? And then it hit me. We had the number one basketball school in the country and we, it was ran by a man named Bob Hurley who got inducted to the Hall of Fame the same year Michael Jordan did, one of the top basketball coaches of all time. And Hurley, is a mili- he's like a military guy. He's mm-hmm. a guy that you don't, you're scared to even laugh around him because he had you. He, he took the best athletes in the world, the best basketball players in the world, and he straightened them out. When Team USA was having a problem with Kevin Garnett, they brought Hurley there to be able to straighten them out, right? He was the, Hurley was the only one that most people listened to. So I'm like, I want to play for Hurley. And if I, if I play for Hurley... Everybody that played for Hurley went to college, 100%. Wow. So I said, if I play for Hurley, Hurley had five to six people get a full Division One scholarship out of his program a year. So I'm like, if I play for Hurley, I'm going to make it in life. If you go in my town or even on most of, the, most of the United States, you tell people that you play for Bob Hurley, the chances of someone knowing him is very high, which means that I can get hired somewhere. So I got really excited. I wrote down, become a St. Anthony Friar, get a scholarship. So I'm super happy about it. Now I took that goal because that goal is going to lead me to the biggest goal that I want to be when I grow up. Then I said, okay, what can I do to start on this today? So I went to school the next day. Mr. Fernandez in the morning looking for me. He said, I need to talk to you. You need, and I said, you know what? You're 100% correct. I need to talk to you. <laughs> so he was blown away. He was, he was like, oh, you need to talk to me. And I said, look, I'm, I'm going to make you a deal. I'll tell you everything you want to hear. I'll tell you everything I never told people under one condition. He said, what's that? I said, you have to come every morning and you have to open up this gym at six in the morning and you have to catch my rebounds. 
He said, what? I said, you have to catch my rebounds, and I'll tell you everything you want. I want to work on my jump shot because if I work on my basketball game, I can go to play for St. Anthony's. He goes, you know what? I'll make you a deal. I'll do that. But the day that you miss, it, every day after that, you have to come after school, and you have to sit in my office. And I was like, oh, man, I don't know if I want to make that deal. Then I was like, you know what? You got it. And I shook hands with him. The next morning, I went there, and I started working on my game. He came to the basketball gym the next morning, and I, he came with this tank top, high shorts, high socks, and headband. And he had this gold chain and his gold wrist um, uh, bracelet. And I'm like, this guy's a clown. He thinks, he, I, I hope he doesn't want to play me because I'm, I'm going to destroy him. <laughs> um, I had something else come. This guy destroyed me. He threw elbows at me. He made moves on me. I'm, I was blown away. I couldn't tell the whole, you know, the whole school about Mr. Fernandez is a good basketball player. Then I come to find out. They're like, oh, you didn't know Mr. Fernandez was one of the best. He's in a, he's in a New Jersey Basketball Hall of Fame. <laughs> one morning I came in, he had the newspaper, and he had a guy named Mike Rosario that just got a scholarship to play for Rutgers. He takes the newspaper. He puts it up. Before I came in the gym, he said, go to that newspaper and read it. So I read it. Then I'm like, okay, let's go. He goes, no, no, go read it again. So I read it. I'm like, okay. He goes, now I want you to read it one more time, but I want you to, instead of saying Mike Rosario, put Nate Ortiz. And besides Mike's face there, imagine your face. And every morning he did that. And then when another player got a scholarship from there, he made me do it. He made me do it. And it became to a position where I felt as if I were ready a St. Anthony Fryer. So summertime comes. I go, I'm, I'm all over the streets because my dad is moving. My mom is moving. So I'm in all different neighborhoods. So I went to every basketball court in Jersey City to play in every league to play against the best kids. One day, Bob Hurley comes. He sees me play. I was in sixth grade. I played in the high school league. And he said, hey, man. You're, he said, hey, kid, you're good. You're pretty good. What do I know you from? I'm like, what do you know me from? You don't, you don't know me. And I was shaking because it's Bob Hurley. And then he goes, who's your father? And so oh, my father is Nate, Nate Turner. He goes, oh, yeah, I arrested your father. <laughs> I said, what? He said, well, I used to be a parole officer and, and your father, I was on your father. How's your father doing today? And now I'm like, I don't want to tell him the truth because I don't want him thinking I'm, you know, this bad kid. But then I, I knew that being honest was the best way to go. I'm like, oh, my dad's still, you know, doing what he has to do to take care of us. So he looks around. He goes, come next week to the gym. I have a camp. Now, I already know about his camp. Each year, he does a basketball camp, and he gets sixth graders, seventh graders, eighth graders. It's kind of prospect, but also to see who's the best in the, in the tri-state area. So he's like, all right, you can come. So I went to the camp. Now, the camp starts at 8 o'clock. I got there at 6. So one thing since I was a kid that I knew that I had to take advantage of, I didn't have the money for the gear. I didn't have money for the lessons, but I, I can outwork you. Mm -hmm. And I'll outwork the janitor. <laughs> So I got there. The janitor gets there. He's like, what do you? And I was sitting in front of the gym. He's like, the camp doesn't start to eight. I said, I know. I'm going to wait. So as I waited, the assistant basketball coach let me in, pulled me to the side and goes, where do I know you from? I'm like, you don't know me. He's like, who's your father? I said, well, Nate Turner. He goes, I used to be your father's gym teacher. <laughs> so I'm like, oh my God, my dad is all over town. Everybody knows this guy. So then he goes, do you have breakfast with you? I said, no, I don't have breakfast. He said, mom and dad didn't give you money? I said, I don't have money. He said, well, do you want breakfast? I said, no. I just want the ball so I can shoot before these kids get here so I can destroy these kids today. So he gave me the ball. I got an out. Every day I went, in, I went two hours early to shoot. I became the MVP of the summer league. 
See, when you go to summer league, they give you a T-shirt. I took that T-shirt and wore it every day. <laughs> so when I was done with the league, we won the championship. They moved me up to eighth grade. But when we were done with the league, I was going around the city telling all the drug dealers. Because each section of my city, there's drug dealers that usually really run the courts there. They're sitting on the corners. Mm-hmm. And uh, the drug dealers protected me from other neighborhoods coming over and, and hurting me. So I went to my neighborhood. I'm like, I got a scholarship. They're like, you got a scholarship? No, I didn't get a scholarship. But I knew if I told them I got a scholarship, that means I have to I apply more pressure and I have to make the scholarship come true. I can't be a liar. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good reverse psychology. I did that in sixth grade and nobody believed me. Everybody laughed. So I had proof. My proof was, look, I got the, look at the shirt. I got the St. Anthony shirt. And um, so for sixth grade, I'd never missed a day of school. So I kept my deal. So when it was seventh grade coming back, now things are getting a little rough at home. Now, actually, and I never told nobody this, but going into seventh grade year was actually the first time I've ever seen my mom get high. And that was devastating because when I was growing up, I didn't know mom was getting high. Mm. Um, I just thought mom, mom has, my mom's bipolar and she has multiple personality disorder. Mm-hmm. So I'm working with like five, six different versions of my mother. Yeah, that's tricky. It's very tricky. So this is when I started to really want to understand psychology outside of the books with experience. Mm-hmm. So I remember one day I went home and there was my mom's doorknob was broke and I was trying to, you know, let her know I was leaving. And then when I looked through the doorknob hole, I witnessed my mom, you know, getting high with her husband mm-hmm. at the time. And, um, and that's when things started to get bad. So going to seventh grade, things started to go downhill. Um, my dad made sure that Brandon and I, my little brother Brandon and I, we stood together. Nobody could separate us because my whole family was getting separated all the time. Mm-hmm. But Brandon and I never separated. He's like a twin. He looks like me. I call him my twin. But one of the hardest things for me was life was hard for me as a kid. But this guy was, he was eight years old. You know, he was three years younger than me. So I knew that I had to be the bigger brother and, and develop this mindset. I call it the bulletproof mindset. Nothing can stop it. I had to develop this mindset to protect him, you know? So I go back to school and immediately when I went to school, I wanted to know why mom was, I wanted to know why behind everything. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, why is my mom getting high? Why is my dad a drug dealer? Why is my dad not taking his knowledge and be, so then why, why is my brain? Sometimes I come to school and I can read, but sometimes I can't. I noticed I couldn't read after 12 p.m. after lunch. What is it? Is it the food, right? So I started adding all these things up. So when I went back to school, Immediately, I started to experience uh, a change in the, the, what, what was interesting to me and what wasn't. I became very serious with life. I stopped becoming a class clown. I wanted to get good grades. And I remember when I went home, my, my, my stepfather went to prison that year. My stepfather came home from prison. He was a different man. I went, and he looked like a superhero. This guy was built like the Hulk. So immediately, I noticed that my mother would yell at him. He, was, he won't react. I noticed that he was not an alcoholic or he wasn't drinking at the time. What did, what did he do? I want to know what happened. So I asked him what happened. What did he do differently? And he told me to come with him the next morning at 7 a.m. So I woke up the next morning at 7 a.m. I, I went to him went to the park and it was like seven other guys there that just came home from prison. And, they're doing, and they put me on the pull-up bar. They said, okay, do some pull-ups. Now I was always overweight when I was a kid and there was no way I can do a push-up or pull-up. But even though it was obvious I couldn't do it, they encouraged me. So I saw the power of the mind 
immediately, they encourage, you can do it. Now, if I had this big, strong guy telling me I can do it, I can do it. So I noticed that if I told my mind I can do something, I can do it. And as we were working out 15 to 20 minutes in our workout, these guys start talking about their feelings. I'm like, what the hell is going on here? These tough guys are talking about how they're sad and how they're, they're going to make something out of their life. And then I noticed myself, as soon as like 25, 30 minutes was starting to cave in, I started to notice myself feel grounded for the first time in my life. When I walked away, I noticed that my thoughts were more aligned. I noticed that my feelings were more managed and I, and I couldn't wait to share it with somebody. So I went to immediately my friends that were in gangs and I tried to get them, I convinced them to come to the basketball with me at six in the morning. So I got 15 of my friends that were all on the streets to come with me in, in the morning. In seventh grade, eighth grade, they never missed a day of school. They never got back, they never got in trouble. 14 of them today have families, they're out of jail, they went to high school and they, they're, they're successful. Only one of them are in jail right now. So I saw the power of putting your mind to something, moving the body, and then coming together in encouragement. So eighth grade comes around, no scholarship from Bob Hurley. I'm like, I got to do something. Now things are getting worse. Now we lose the apartment. Uh-oh. Now we go to Red Cross. So in the morning, I go to school with a, ba- a laundry bag. And I got a laundry bag deodorant in there, a toothbrush, and probably leftover dinner from last night if I had. And I came to school. The nurse used to allow me and my brother to dump our laundry bag of our stuff because then after school, we have to walk probably like two hours to Red Cross, sit at Red Cross, and then wait for a donation to come in. So they had donations come in that were going, that were being distributed to different things they had. And then there was leftover donations that they'll buy me a room. So when they brought me a room, that room can be two hours the other way. Wow. So we did this in the winter. We did this all year round. And um and then sometimes the rooms had bed bugs. So we knew how to we knew how to work with bed bugs. We had an agreement with bed bugs. We made like little little ways to not get bit and it was just crazy. So I, I started to lose a little bit of hope as if I wasn't gonna get a scholarship from Bob Hurley. Usually by eighth grade you get the scholarship, didn't get anything. One day I go to, I'm I'm in school, I'm going to the bathroom, my brother goes, Nate, Nate, I'm like, What? He goes, Come here. I ran over. He goes, Bob Hurley's daughter is my teacher. Her first day was today. His daughter is my teacher. I can tell him about you. I'm like, are you serious right now? So after school, I go get my brother from picking him up. And he goes, this is my brother. This is my brother. Your, your dad has to give him a scholarship. She goes, hi, I'm Melissa. And I'm like, oh, hi. She goes, my, your brother keeps talking about you. Now, my brother, since we were missing so much school, my brother was left back two grades. So my brother is like 5'10 in third grade. Wow. So he was, it was looking, but he was so smart that Melissa fought for him to be pushed back to his regular grade. Mm-hmm. So she, she changed his life. But at the same time, she convinced her father to come to one of my games. The, day, the only game that he was able to come to was a summer league in the middle of the ghetto. And it was, I never imagined Bob Hurley coming to that part of the town, but I mean, he ran the town. He can go any part he wants. I remember the day like it was yesterday. Our league was so broken that the eighth graders were paying seniors in high school. So it was drug dealers that was running the leagues. Because what drug dealers did, they found out how to get recreational money to run a recreational league, but then also put a little money in their pocket. So one day I remember I'm warming up and I'm playing this kid that has a division one scholarship. I'm in eighth grade. Now this park that we're playing in, I used to sleep in this park because sometimes Red Cross didn't come through or sometimes mom locked the door and I couldn't get in the house. So I had to find somewhere to go. So I used to tell my brother, if we want to be successful in life, you got to be able to really like work for it. 
to the point, are, are you willing to sleep in a basketball court to become a basketball player? Mm. I used to make up these stories to keep his imagination from crumbling because if he crumbled, I crumbled. Mm. So we, used to, we sometimes we had to sleep in that park or stay there till like 3, 4 in the morning, then wait in front of the school until the janitor comes and then go inside. So I used to shoot in this park with no lights. So this was my park. We're warming up. I'm like, all right, I have to play this college kid. I don't know. You see a white Audi come, convertible. Bob Hurley pulls up. People go, Nate, Hurley's here. Hurley. Everybody told me. At that moment, I felt in my heart that this, in my gut, this was my moment. I had 55 points, and I earned a full scholarship to play for Bob Hurley that day. Yeah, good. When we did that, my mom lost it even more to the point where my dad says, my mom started to really beat us to the point where my dad was like, all right, I can't, I'm going to have to risk my, my, my freedom. So you guys are going to have to stay with me now. So we used to stay, um, as soon as I got in high school, we started staying in a hotel right in front of the Holland Tunnel. Mm. And um, every day at 11 o'clock, we were waiting for, my dad hopefully made enough money so we can pay for the room. But now it was, Nate, take this bottle, go to the car, and make sure he gives you $2,200. Wow. Nate, take this bottle, drive here, make sure that this person gives you 3500 and don't let them leave if they don't give you all the money. So now it was me having to do something that I was not built for. Mm. I grew up with all these people on the streets, but in my heart since I was a kid, I felt like I was not here to do. I, w- I just wasn't built for it. My brother was, my cousins are. For me, if me and you had a fight, which I try to avoid all I can, I'll cry after yeah. and, and give you a hug and talk to you like, we should never do that again. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're bleeding with a broken hose and I'm like, don't do that to me again, please. Let's not do that again. So things were getting worse as far as that you know, that was going. And then now I'm in St. Anthony's. I got the full scholarship and then the school found out I was homeless and then I was busted because they found me coming back and forth from the hotel because the hotel was only a couple blocks away from the school. And then the whole school tried to help me give me like, you know, granola bars during the day and stuff. And it was, it was really nice of them to do. But then I knew I had to figure out how to get a college, how to get to college. Mm. So long story short, when I was in high school, they started a football program and Hurley was like, Nate, you're 6'3", you're 240, you're very athletic. Why don't you try to play football? They're going to start a program. I'm like, I'll never play football. And Hurley's like, Nate, I think all professional tight ends play football. I mean, play basketball and they became great tight ends. So I gave it a try. And, um, First, I was the first Division One football player in school history, and I had 25 scholarships. I was the number two tight end in uh, in the state of New Jersey. I made all state. I was a uh, um, I made the new uh, the New Jersey All Star team, and um, but football really wasn't what I wanted to do. It was my way to get to college. I got a full scholarship. I went to Delaware, and they said, you know, the um, the counselors like you should just study communications. Football players come, they study communications, easy play football, go to the NFL. And I was like, no, 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 no. I want to study bachelor science. I want to study movement science. I want to know why the body looks like this and why muscles hurt. And they're like, Nate, you can't do that. Only 3% of um, student athletes go through that program and actually finish. And and he kind of like came lean over and he said, uh, you got to learn disabilities. You know, that's going to be really difficult. And as soon as he said I couldn't do it, I'm like, all right, now I'm going to do it just to show you I can do it. So I end up going through that, becoming one of the top students in that. And, uh, and then I blew up in football. I was the first tight end to do a lot of things in school history. And then one day we have four NFL scouts there. They, they check my weight. They're not allowed to talk to me as being an athlete. 
but I knew that we all knew that I was going to be predicted probably fourth round. And um, I remember I was in football practice. They were there. My coach was showing me off and he was doing all the plays to favor me. And then I remember one play I'm blocking because I'm tight end. I block and I, and I catch. I'm blocking and my teammate ran right into my spine and I felt tingling going down my legs. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, something's not right. So I ran over to the coach and I said, coach, my legs are tingling. And he says, shut the hell up and get back in there. Mm. So I go back in, and then it was a play where I had to act like I was blocking the defensive end. And then if the linebacker comes, I get off the defensive end, I run, and I catch the ball because the linebacker's not there. And that's exactly what happened. Linebacker went, I went, but as I turned, I lost feeling in my legs. The ball hit my helmet. I collapsed, and I was rushed to the emergency room. You blew a disc? Yes. L5? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, L4 was also... uh, I damaged L4 as well. Mm. Now I'm in a wheelchair, worst pain of my life, and they want to give me drug um, painkillers, but I'm scared to take drugs because my parents are addicts. So mm-hmm. I'm like, no, 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 I can't take that. And then um, and then I start to cry, and I knew that my chances of, you know, the spinal doctor was trying to do emergency surgery. And he's like, you got to go to surgery. And I'm like, I'm not going to surgery. I'm not, I don't want surgery. Um, and then as I'm sitting there, I started to cry, and my teammates came. Two of my teammates came, and we all knew my career was over. And then I started to laugh, and they're like, "What is so funny?" And I'm like, "Oh my god, I can! I'm not supposed to be a football player, man. This yeah. is going to be another chapter in my book. Yeah, and I'm going to inspire the world from this." So they're like, "Oh, the painkillers are kicking in." I'm like, "No, they're not. <laughs> I didn't take them." So I went home, and I went through a deep depression because now I did not know who I was without being an athlete. Yeah. My whole life, I had back issues. And when I was 16, I remember I came across somebody for the first time in my entire life that I said, that is me. I couldn't find that in basketball. I couldn't find that in football. You find a nice basketball player, I'm not 6'8". You find a nice football player, they're, they're, they, I, they, don't, they can't relate to me. They grew up in the middle class. So one day, I was online, and I was always trying to search for answers to deep, dig deeper into the science I was learning at school. And this freaking guy kept on coming up and it was annoying me because this guy did not look like he knew what he was talking about. This guy didn't look like a doctor. I'm programmed to look like to look for people that are doctors. And this guy's name was Yo Elliot. Elliot Hulse. Yes. Okay. I came across Yo Elliot at 16. I didn't want to watch his videos. I'm going to be 100% honest with you because of the programming that I had. Mm-hmm. This guy was jacked. Looked like an older version of me. And I'm like, I don't want to talk. I don't listen to this guy. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And then one day, I couldn't get rid of this back pain my whole life. I had back and I had rheumatoid arthritis. Could not get rid of it. And I'm like, he had a video saying why your back is jacked up. So I avoided it for like five months. Every time I was looking up back pain, I was like, don't listen to this guy. So one day I go click the video. And this guy goes, the reason why your back is jacked up is because your guts are jacked. I mean, messed up. Mm-hmm. I was like, that kind of, what the hell did he just say? So I rewinded it. And he goes, here's some signs that you know your gut's messed up. Farting, bloating. And I'm like, oh my God, that's me. So I start digging in all his videos. And as I'm watching him, my ego did not want to accept none of his information. But there was this gut feeling, this intuition in my, in my gut, in my heart. That not only that I have to dig deeper, but a sense of finally I found me. Mm. I found who I am. Mm. Yeah. The because, golden thread. 
So when I was growing up, I was always trying to figure out, you know, I'm half black, half white. Who am I? I can't rap. I can't relate to these rappers. I can't relate to nobody. And I'm motivating. I was always growing up in the streets of Jersey City where you can catch me motivating you to stop drinking so we can, you know, have our minds straight for tomorrow to escape this ghetto. And when I saw Yo Elliot speak, I'm like, that's me. That, 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 that guy is me. So then I want to know, where the hell did you learn this information from? <laughs> I said, who, where did you learn this from? I'm in school. I'm not learning this right now. Dug deep, and he had a video of saying something with my mentor. And then there I see Paul check. I see Yo Elliot and Paul. So I click on the video, and then I didn't hear a word you said. I didn't. I, I wasn't hearing anything you said yet. The video just started. What made me want to listen more is I studied body language because when I used to come out my bedroom, I used to have to know what mom I had that day. Yeah. Do I have mom that's going to beat the hell out of me? Mm-hmm. Is mom high, drunk? I can tell by the, what she's doing, by hearing. And then when I looked at her, I looked at her shoulders, her eyes. Mm-hmm. I saw how Yo Elliot was standing next to you. And I said, this is the guy I look up to, but I can just tell by his body language that he's all ears with this guy. And I don't care what the hell this guy has to say. I'm listening to everything he says. So I listen to the video, and then that's when I go deep on your work. Then I'm like, oh, this guy's a wizard. (laughs) (laughs) So then that's when I called dad, and I said, dad, I found someone smarter than you. (laughs) I was like, okay, I want to get the the book that you had, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy. And I was so broke. I was 16 at the time. You should have just emailed me. I would have given it to you. (laughs) You know what's great? I didn't even have access to email. We only had access to email in the morning when I lived in a hotel. But I didn't even know what email was. I was so out of that world. As I'm growing up, I was trying to get How to Eat Movie Be Healthy. But tell you the truth, you gave so much information that you made. I read 45,000 books that you made. But you have to put the effort in. A lot of people mm-hmm. are not willing to put the effort in yes. to look in your blogs. Mm-hmm. Actually sit down and watch a 30-minute video. Yeah. I did all of that. I have notebooks of your, your work. Mm-hmm. So I was watching the video you made and you said that you call it you, you said that you, you there's only so much fast food information you can give. Right. And you kind of changed my perspective on investing into education. Yeah, good. Um, but at the same time, you also said in one of the videos that it's your way of giving back to the universe. And I'm like, I don't think this guy understands that he's actually getting me through what I'm getting going through for free. And I can't one day, I, I, I just couldn't wait to thank you one day. That's why I do it. That's why I do it. I, you know how many thousands of hours I've put in? There's over 750 videos on my channel. Mm-hmm. You know, my philosophy has always been to be an information Santa Claus. Mm. You know, Santa comes down the chimney and he leaves you something nice. He doesn't charge you anything. Mm. Just like you're saying, I've been through a lot of hard times myself, and and there's always been key people in my life that somehow managed to teach me something or give me something. Mm. Because I'd had so many letters from people saying, I can't afford to take your course, I can't afford to buy your book, I can't afford to go to the Institute or whatever, so I just felt that it was my responsibility spiritually to the rest of myself Mm. because philosophically I believe that there's only one being that exists and that's what we call God. 
And so I felt obligated to make sure that anyone that could access video could at least find solutions or know what questions to ask their doctors or their therapists so that they could have a rational approach to what was going on to begin mm-hmm. to understand it. I mean, I've done videos on everything. Obviously, you've watched a lot of them. so I watched them over and over again. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. <laughs> the same I, video like a thousand times. Well, you probably got a better education than you would have gotten in a university. Well, that that's the interesting thing. When I, when I actually started to go to school, I had a lot of challenges with my professors. because <laughs> of course I'm like, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and then I started to notice, oh, the program is deep. Yes. There's a deep programming going on. And I was never one to hold back. The, the, the best thing about the information is I applied it. As soon as I started to apply it, one of the first things is a fungal infection. Mm. I had, I mean, I lived in mold houses. I yeah. lived and I, I studied the hell out of your fungal infection information. I applied it and I saw my attention disorder leave. Yes. My depression leave. These mm. pimples on my face disappear. Yeah. So fungal, then, fungal mycotoxins are extremely toxic. They're some of the most dangerous chemicals in the world. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know this, but they use them in military warfare. Mm-hmm. I actually saw a video once doing some research where they had extracted the fungal mycotoxins and made a liquid out of it. And they had a rat in a glass box and the scientist dropped one drop of this liquid from fungal mycotoxins and it killed the rat instantly. The rat just fell over and dropped dead with one drop of fungal mycotoxins. And they're considered to be some of the most dangerous chemicals in the world. And some of the most sick people I've ever had to work with are people that didn't realize they had a fungal infection in their house. Mm. Mold, right? Mold, yeah. Mm-hmm. So when I went through the the, 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 the stuff, like uh, the school, as I'm going through school, I already in my mind, when my career was over, in the back of my mind, I said, I have to figure out how to do what Elliot Hulse did. Mm-hmm. I want to be the next Joe Elliot. Because I saw him turn his dream into green is what I call it. Yeah. Turning his dream into making a beautiful business, but also helping millions of people. I graduated college. Now when I graduate college, my dad... Has an, he has an apartment, but he has it in one of the worst neighborhoods in New Jersey. It was Newark, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And it was, a, it was a very, very, it was a scary neighborhood that I- my, I've been I, there. I know exactly what you're talking about. You know what's strange? The, uh, I'm trying to remember, 1988, it was either the men's or the women's Olympic trials and the marathon were held there. And I was the therapist for both the men's and the women's, and I had 10 athletes that I coached make it to the Olympic trials. And the first thing I noticed, I could not find food worth eating anywhere. And there was a huge problem with obesity there. And forgive me for saying, but I felt like I was in a shithole. <laughs> I'm like, well, who in the hell would live here? No, no, you got to, you, listen, I feel the same way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, why did they put the friggin' marathon trials here? I mean, these poor athletes are... I, I remember I went to a restaurant, and this is a long time ago, and the waitress is a huge fat lady, and she brought me a bunch of white bread. And I said, I'm just curious, do you guys even have brown bread or whole grain bread? And she looked at me and she said, what's that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, we're in big trouble. So what started to happen in New Jersey is that on the Hudson River, you have Jersey City and Hoboken. 
and then you have Bayonne on the other side. What happens is it started to be, I call it baby Manhattan. So people started to build brand new housing and buildings on the Hudson River. So people that went to New York that was, it was too expensive to get an apartment, come over to New Jersey and get an apartment for cheaper and it's new. Right. So what that did is it raised the rent on people that were, you know, didn't have money and they all started to move back and a lot of them ended up in Newark. Now, not to say everybody, but Newark was always a struggling city when it came down to that. And it was a city that I didn't like going to because like I said, in in Jersey City, I was protected. The drug dealers and the gang guys knew who I was and they protected me. This neighborhood, they don't care who you are. So when I graduated college, I'm like, where am I going to live? I didn't even think about these things because I was planning to go to the NFL. And my girlfriend's father pulls me to the side. I mean, uh, tells my girlfriend, hey, listen, you're a good kid. And I I know you're going to be successful. So you can come live with us in Washington Heights. So they had this apartment, probably 700 square foot apartment in Washington Heights. But if when you enter his home, it makes it. He made it feel like you were in Tribeca. He redid everything. But Washington Heights is one of the worst neighborhoods in New New York, right? So I go from one ghetto to another. But here's the thing: number one, when I went there, I always had clean clothes. I had heat. I had hot water. And this was in 2017. And I knew it was somewhere I was going to go that had internet, and it was in New York City. I can get on a train and train people you know you know it's strange you're saying this was only 2017 that's what is this 20 2022 five years ago five years ago it's 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 a very interesting thing for me because you know i'm 61 so 2017 for me feels like five minutes ago yeah you know what what's coming to me is is that um your destiny's child (laughs) It's just like the unfolding. It's it's in your life. It's moving quite fast. Mm-hmm. How old are you, Nate? I I turned twenty nine. You know, it's like you're living a very accelerated life. Because mm-hmm. f- f- to go from there in twenty seventeen to having your first place to have clean clothes and a shower and, and a stable mm-hmm. environment to where you're at now is is. I mean, that's like getting shot out of a cannon. Yeah. Yeah. I I say my whole life, though, I use my imagination and I never accepted. I never, I knew I was going to do what I'm doing today. So it feels like I was shot out of a cannon, but at the same time, it felt like I was, this interview right now between you and I, I did this already in my mind a thousand (laughs) times. When you were interviewing other people, I imagined that anytime your guest uh, um, responded, that was me. (laughs) <laughs> I imagine myself sitting there. I really did that, that. My mind was something that got me out of all of this. But at the same time, there's um, something that I'd noticed side effects from this as well. So as great as it sounds that I was doing, the side effects is it's hard for me to sit down on a Monday after accomplishing everything and not doing something else, working on something. Yeah. Right? It's hard to put a rein on. Yeah. Because I, I, I became obsessed and not a, I'm, you know what yeah i became obsessed with making sure i i'm scoping out the person that i want to become i'm doing something to make sure that happens yeah well at your age that's a normal there's a lot of drive uh when you're that age to create your identity and 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 have a sense of who you are mm-hmm. and to if you're healthy to do something in the world mm-hmm uh, I got news for you. That's going to go on for a while. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, you got to tell me, tell my partner. 
<laughs> well, you know, the the thing is, you know, I, when I was in the the age you're at now, I was like a like a, a a literal ball of fire. I was intensely driven. Um, I came to the realization what I was here in the world to do the day I became the trainer of the army boxing team and then had the experience of, of seeing how my knowledge and my therapy that I did for the fighters enhanced their performance and, and the coaches and saying, whatever the hell you're doing, it's working. Cause you know, the injury rate dropped down dramatically and their athletic ability improved dramatically and I was in fights with the coaches all the time because they kept wanting to do stupid stuff. And I kept having to try to explain to them why that wasn't working. And they would say, how can you say that to us? Do you know how many champions we've created? And you know what I would say to them? I have a more important question you should ask. How many have you ruined mm. along the way? The, the, the only reason I'm bringing this up is because, you know, I can look at your story and I can find myself in your story, and I can see the intensity, but I can save you a lot of time. There's a reason I teach working in, and there's a reason I did Tai Chi every day for 18 years. And there's a reason I haven't been missed a day of work due to illness in over 40 years, because however much fire you have, it takes that much water to keep you in balance basic alchemy so if you push yourself so hard that you get to the point where you start losing your sense of center your sense of focus and your sense of um, connection to things that aren't meaningful and what i mean by that is it's very easy at your age to keep having to do something that's meaningful that produces a result that gets you somewhere but that takes tremendous focus. And what happens is your mind starts to get tired and your body is what's carrying your mind. So if your body, if your mind is tired, your body's tired. And so what happens is you start losing your creativity, you start losing your enthusiasm and your girlfriend will want to take your phone away and your computer away and your books away and get you to just look into her eyes and be present with what's right in front of you so that you can see God instead of reading books about it. And it took me a long time to learn that. So, you know, I think if there's anything I can give you at this time in your life, always ask yourself, how much water do I need to balance my fire so that I'm not burnt out, my mind is clear, and I have the time to make the important decisions that not only give me the success that I want and help give me the ability to help other people, but don't take me away from contact with the people that I'm here to love and that love me. Because if you get too far and I've done it, I lost contact with my son, Paul Jr., and I lost contact with my first wife because I was like you. I was too focused, and anybody that got in my way was a pain in the ass because I was on a mission. And so I ended up with a wounded son who 
thought I loved work more than I loved him. But similar to you, coming from a rough family environment and parents that often didn't have much money, I was focused on getting away from that. And so in my mind, I had created this story that as long as I make enough money, that my family can have a nice home and and shoes and clothes and things that upset me because I didn't get compared to my friends as a kid, that I was doing the best thing for them. So I ended up living in a nice condo in the nice part of town, in a wealthy part of town, making lots of money. But the people that love me only got to see me study and work and study and work and study and work. And so it caused pain because they felt that I loved my work and other people more than I loved them. And so it, though some of these are hard lessons to learn, especially when you come from a background like yours, because you're, you get to the point where you realize that the success you have is because you did the hard work to get there. You made the goal. And so the next target is the next goal because the mind says, that's what I've got to do to be safe. But in reality, what happens is you find yourself financially safe, but losing connection to your heart. So I end up going to New York City. And as I'm in New York City, every day I woke up and I made a video and I had no job. I had nowhere to go. I had nothing. My girlfriend went to acting class. Her father was a hardworking man and a, a great father who took care of his kids, who worked his butt off every day. And I would go to Starbucks every day because they had Wi-Fi. I'd get their coffee. And then I'll get their um, bathroom code all for $2 in a cup of water for $2. So, but I will put myself in that position to make myself feel like I was going to work. So I used to sit at Starbucks and I will write down a goal every day. And my goal was to become a check practitioner. Well, you did it. Yeah. And I was like, if I become a check practitioner, I can change a lot of things. So I started to apply. I got into uh, HLC1, started to apply these things. Then I got the the... Um, more all the courses, you know, the program design. I applied all this stuff to my coaching, making videos. People requested, you know, help. I would go all over New York City, help people. But I applied all my coaching in the holistic lifestyle coaching formula. Good. Nobody has ever seen that. And then I bring my enthusiasm to it. And then I started changing people's lives. And it was getting to a point where doctors were calling me, asking me to work with their obese clients before mm-hmm. they do bypass surgery like can you help them before we do the bypass surgery that was nice of them to ask most yeah. of them don't ask they no, don't they want don't. you to win <laughs> exactly so out of nowhere one day i get a phone call from goldman sachs vice president his name was steve silverman and that he thinks i would be a great leader and the new person to run his business in westchester new york i was 24 and they, and i had to figure out how to grow a business i never did it before so i got there early every day and i just studied on how to run a business I turned it into being a very successful business because I was applying my check practitioner, uh, you know, knowledge, and I was changing people. People come back pain, never looked at their digestive tract. People come with attention just a, a huge rise in attention disorder in kids today um, that I see. So I was getting all the success. At the same time, I moved my girlfriend out of her, um, her father's apartment. We get our first little apartment. And then I told her, quit her job and just focus on acting. For five years, we focused. I'll go to work all day. Plus, I built my own. I started building my own business on the side. I'm like, if I can build this guy a business, I build my own. Now, as I'm doing both of those, I come home and I would do scripts all day with, with my partner. And one day I come home, 
and she had the script. I was so tired. I didn't want to do it. But as soon as I saw the script, I'm like, this is going to be your part. And she ended up booking a, a main series TV show, Say by the Bell. It was a reboot, and she was the main actress. She goes to Los Angeles. Now I'm in New York, and I'm like, my, my soul was telling me I had to go experience being on my own, leave safety and security. And when you come from the root chakra dysfunctions and safety and security, I didn't want to do that. And then COVID hit. And as soon as COVID hit, I went up to Los Angeles and I had to figure out, okay, Nate, now do it from scratch. Do everything by yourself. At first, it was I went through like a little depression. It was really hard for me because now I'm going around Los Angeles. I was building my name up in New York. Now I'm a nobody. And now I'm driving around and my partner is all over billboards. <laughs> She's a star. And then I was Nate. I was Haskiri's boyfriend. I was the boyfriend of somebody. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm Nate. <laughs> so I had to find myself. It was like a nice reality check. And then that's when I sat down again and I started to manifest. Well, you should have come to the first realization that the divine feminine is more powerful than the divine masculine. Right. <laughs> so I sat there and I said, you know what? This little fear of criticism, this fear that I have of making videos and putting myself out there about the information that I'm learning, I'm not going to let it hold me back. I gave you little bits here and there, but now I'm going to go all in. And when I decided to go all in, I started to say to myself, I'm going to have celebrities come ask for help. And that's exactly what started to happen. Celebrities come for mental, you know, um, you know, issues when it comes down to digestion, weight loss, back pain. But then a lot of life coaching. I put life coaching in life coaching, they all go together if you like it or not, right? They have to. <laughs> they have to. So then I started transforming people's lives. And then I got the um a Grammy nominated artist mm -hmm. that had to lose weight. I got him down 35 pounds. Everybody thought it was gonna be impossible because he was a hip hop artist. And then he was dating Naomi Osaka. So I applied a lot of this stuff to Naomi Osaka, her nutrition, a lot of that stuff. And she ends up winning the Australian Open in 2020. And then things start to take off. And then I, every time I made money, one thing I did throughout my journey is I always made an account to make sure that I can go get HLC1, HLC2, HLC3. I can pay for my hotel. I can pay for my food. And then I came to HLC2 in 2020. Um, at the end of in November, October, and that's when I met Angie Check. And listen to this. I'm sitting in, in class. There's like 35 of us. We're doing our own thing. And you know how you make us have to do our own um, HLC uh, health uh, appraisal and, you know, the paperwork that we have to yeah, do for you're ourselves. you're supposed to write your own program. You write – yeah. So my charts came back all in red. So we're hanging out in class. Everybody's doing what they got to do. And Angie's like, all right, we're going to find someone, someone, you know, if you want to participate to become the example of the client, you know, let us know and we're going to make you the example so we can apply all the knowledge. And I'm like, okay. And uh, just want to throw this in there. Angie Check is the best teacher I've ever had in my life. She is. Best I've ever had in my life. Well, she's the best I've ever seen in my life. So, I mean, you weren't there at the Czech conference in 2013, but we had a the ultimate Czech professional contest and Czech professionals from all over the world sent in an application to show and describe what they had done with the Czech teachings. So the goal was to award somebody the ultimate Czech professional. <clears throat> and, and I think we, for the, for the actual conference, we had narrowed it down to the three, three or four people and they each got a half hour presentation. And <clears throat> of course it was, 
the Czech Institute and my teaching. So I thought, well, I want to see what people have been doing with this because that's the whole point I built the Institute was so the guys like you could go do something with it. Because, you know, when you have as much knowledge as I do and you look at the world, you go, God, you're in deep trouble right now. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. So anyhow, I was so utterly blown away with Angie's presentation. I mean, it literally brought tears to my eyes and she was making me laugh. She was even making fun of me in the presentation, (laughs) which was even funnier. But, uh, you know... um, I'm just reiterating and and she's a master of time and she studies and she's always asking me questions for clarification. So um, I didn't know at the time she'd end up being my second wife. That was not something I realized, but um, your assessment of her teaching skills is very accurate is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, she was, she was amazing. And so and she's funny. She's extremely funny. She throws it in her, her her teachings, and she does it at the right moment. So what she did is from the paperwork, when she was able to tell me about my whole life without looking at the just to look at the questionnaire, she told me about my whole life. Was the first time I told a group of people in front of me what happened to me in my life. Everybody was crying in class. I was fighting from breaking down and just losing it. Because it was the first time I felt like a mother archetype was making sure I was okay. She's a strong mother. I was just blown away. So my number one goal was when I come back to HLC3, I want to have better paperwork so I can show it off. (laughs) (laughs) Good idea. (laughs) So after that, she, you know, I was the client that week. And then after I was the client, you know, everybody, she gave me the, you know, how we have to take the test. I I mean, the paperwork. At the end, she handed me my paperwork and congratulated me, but she kept me for the last, and everybody was crying. We all came and did a big group hug, and and I'm sitting there, and she looked at me, and she goes, you remind me a lot of Paul with his work ethic, and it's okay to rest, and it's okay to take your time. <laughs> See? It's coming at you again. Yeah, it was coming at me. So it was catching up to me, what you said earlier. I started to notice that it's going to be compl- – I'm just a completely honest guy. So, so, I went so from a safer being, policy. <laughs> yeah. I went from being like 10% body fat to like 15% body fat. Mm-hmm. How? I'm, I eat the same way. I train even harder now. And then I start to see I was losing my body. And then I start to see I start to lose my creativity. I was losing my creativity. Mm-hmm. And then I lost my grandfather. Mm who's like a best friend to me. And then I lost my stepfather the next month. And then I had HLC3 coming up. Right. And I did not want to go to HLC3 because I didn't feel, I felt embarrassed. I said, I got fat. I know this guy. I know, and it was the first time I knew I was going to come across you and I waited my whole life for that. And I was like, I will be so embarrassed if I have to take a shirt off in front of this man right now. <laughs> and he's in his 60s and he's jacked. And now I'm looking like, <laughs> I was like, I can't have that. So I, I told myself I wasn't going to go. And I, and I, and I was going to formulate an email. It was the first time in my life that I was going to avoid something and not put myself through. But like you said earlier, it was also the first time in my life that I, didn't, I couldn't build up the courage until I get a phone call by Vinny. Yep, Vinny used to work in our customer service department. I went to HLC2 with him. I'm like, what's up, Vin? How are you? He's like, I'm good. He's like, you, uh, you want a gift from Paul. I'm like, a gift? What are you talking about? He's like, well, you won a painting. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I won that painting? Now, 
for like three months, you were talking about how you were doing this painting. And I'm like, well, whoever gets that painting is one lucky person, right? Like, it sounds like an amazing painting that's coming out. So when he told me how I got the painting, I was like, oh, crap. He goes, we were going to ship it to you, Nate, but you're coming down next week. So uh, we'll just hold it on. So I'm like, oh, my God, I have to go down now. <laughs> <laughs> so next week, I go into to HLC3. I show off my paperwork to Angie. And then I have a before and after picture. And then, um, and then the next day, you came up. And when you was coming up, I was like, all right, this is the first time I'm going to meet this guy. I can't wait. The first thing you said is, who the hell is the person who won this painting? Yeah. <laughs> but you know why I said that, don't you? I do. And you wrote me a letter. You wrote me a four-page letter. That's why I asked. Yeah, because that, that letter, you need a professor to read that letter. That letter used words that I, I, I'm not even sure the dictionary has. So yeah, I, I, have the, I brought the painting with me here. Yeah, today. Show, you can show it. Yeah, I'll show this painting. I, I honestly, for me, uh, that was a a tough painting because there was so much more that I wanted to do, but I just had no time. I was extremely busy, as I always am, you know, because I'm working on this new book series. And so, what I did was I asked my soul to please connect me to the person that the painting was ultimately for, whoever it was that was going to win it. And I went into meditation in the sauna and asked for the vision that I was supposed to paint, which was ultimately for you. And as I sat in meditation, all I saw was eyes everywhere. And I just kept seeing eyes. And then I saw that they were structured. And I said to my soul, this looks like Indra's net. And my soul said, that's correct. Whoever you're, the, the person you're painting this for is a net worker. A net worker. So because I understand what Indra's net is very deeply and I've studied it extensively and it's actually talked about a lot in my new book, I said, okay, well, I'm going to paint this. And I originally was going to do it on like a huge canvas because Indra's net is the universe. It's, you know, beyond the universe. But I said, I can only do this. And, you know, there's 50 eyes on there. Yes, there are. Yep. So I thought, well, I've got to do something fairly simple for this guy because <laughs> I don't have, I've barely got time to wipe my ass right now. <laughs> So I was getting in here early in the morning and working on that thing, like 4.30, 4 o'clock in the morning. I'd have a cup of coffee or espresso and do my prayers, and then I'd come sit and paint, and then I'd have to go back to work, and then I'd come in. I just kept coming in and out, you know, and, and then I'd try to take a little time on the weekend, but I got to the point where I said, okay, I can't keep going because if I finish this painting, it's going to take me another 50 hours because there's, you know, a lot in there that I couldn't paint because it's so detailed. And that was what was driving me crazy is because every time I would start adding to it, I would be like, okay, there's so much more. How in the world am I going to finish this? So I finally said to my soul, you tell me when it's done enough to give to the winner. Before I brought it to you, because I didn't know it was you, I went into meditation and said to my soul, please connect me to the soul of this person so I can write them a letter about this painting. And so I just got connected to your soul, and I said, what would you like me to write in this letter so that they know for sure that this painting's for them? So that's how the letter got written. In the letter, you said, I know you recently just lost people you loved. Yes. 
I'm like, what the, what, what? You, you mentioned, I don't feel safe. And because my whole life I've been trying to find home. Yeah. And you want, and you, and you said, um, you just want to confirm to me that earth is my home. Yeah. And it was so much more infamous. And then one of the biggest things that stood out that is magical about this painting is that you said that you put eyes on because I'm, I, I help more than one person. So when I help one person, yeah, I'm helping more mm-hmm. and I need to just trust the process. Now, the problem that I was having at a point in my life was doubt kind of cre- was creeping in because I'm like, I'm doing these videos and I'm still not growing the way I want to grow because my focus and my intention was I got to grow, I got to grow, I got to grow. And it wasn't one video at a time, one person at a time. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I took that approach, that was on June 8th, I got that. On June 28th, I went viral on the internet and all the years of hard work that I put in just blew up. All the old videos that I put up all went up on on TikTok, this app called TikTok that I never thought I would ever be successful on because I I don't dance. I thought it was just a dancing app. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that happened, everything just took off. You should start dancing. (laughs) So everything- For fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. With her. Yeah. Yeah, we actually talked about taking dancing classes. Oh, yeah. Just play. Don't don't worry about classes. Just- Put on music that you like. Take five minutes to start your day and shake it out. I do it all the time. It feels freaking great. And just dance for God. Dance for life. Dance for all the people that haven't danced. Remember, you've probably heard me say it before. There's five questions a shaman's going to ask you if you come to them in trouble. When did you stop enjoying being alone? When did you stop singing? When did you stop dancing? When did you lose your sense of magic, mystery, and awe for life? There's one more, but those are the mm-hmm. key questions, right? Mm-hmm. You look from this day forward at every one of your patients. When did you stop enjoying being alone with yourself? Whatever answer they give you, you write it down. When did you stop dancing? Write it down. When they stop singing to sing, write it down. When did you lose your sense for the magic, mystery, and awe of life? Write it down, and you'll see exactly when their disease began, or their illness, or their pain, because those are the periods where they became disconnected from their own soul, their own their own magic of their own being, and got caught in the world. I went through a point in my life where I noticed that I would sit down, and I felt my heart and my body say, okay, Nate, now is time to rest yeah but my ego was like we can't rest you're in los angeles we can't rest <laughs> you see this you see the new actor who just contacted you or these new clients or mm-hmm. you got this opportunity you got to get on that and then i was going against what my intuition was saying and what you were taught exactly <laughs> well, <laughs> exactly so as soon as i started to go against it i started having consequences mm-hmm I started getting clients that I did not want to work with. Mm -hmm. And then I came home one day and I said, okay, you know what? I looked at my girlfriend and she's an actress in Los Angeles. I said, listen, my soul wants to go home. I never went back home. I never lived in New Jersey with money in my pocket. I never lived in New Jersey without living on the streets. Yeah, But I started to notice that more likes, more money, did not make me happy. Mm-hmm. 
what made me happy was being able to take my dad to lunch yeah. and us not running from the cops anymore. Because you said another thing, you can lose your creativity. Yeah. I had for the first time in my life, Paul, first time in my entire life, I struggled without inspiration. Mm. And I would tell my girlfriend, you know what she would say to me? <laughs> She'd be like, find out how much Paul is. Let's pay him. Let's go to let's go work on the ball. <laughs> She would say that all the time. She's like, babe, I don't care. And sometimes she'll get like she 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 got tired of seeing me the way I was. And she's like, we got to find a way. You, you're going to go work with Paul. And then one day I told her, I said, if I go to Paul, I'm going as a victim. Paul taught me what I need to do already. <laughs> I'll be, I'm, I'm, I'm being victim right now. I already know what he's going to tell me. Be your own patient. Exactly. So <laughs> I was cheating Dr. Quiet. There you go. It doesn't work very well. And I was cheating Dr. Happiness. Slightly Dr. Happiness, but Dr. Quiet, and as soon you know, as soon as you cheat one doctor, the other three have to compensate. And then there's only so much compensation you're gonna make. Mm-hmm. And then pain comes in, right, Mr. Payne? So I know that was a long answer to your No, no, it was good. <laughs> uh, it was beautiful. And 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 uh I think there's so many people in the world right now that w- would really benefit from hearing that. Um on on many many levels you know it's easy to talk yourself out of your potential because you think that your circumstances are a good excuse to not have to be who you came to be in the world mm-hmm. right it's easy people with a fraction of the stress in their childhood that that you live through are right now sitting somewhere making excuses about if their mommy and daddy had only done more of this for me or more of that for me, or if I only had this or someone only gave me that or, and so they're, you know, rotting in themselves while the world awaits their genius. The, the things that, you know, I went through in my life that helped me be who I am today was just keeping my mind on who I want to become. Yeah. You know, and Mm -hmm. that's the dream. Exactly. So, when you used to say, I remember when I was taking a fungal infection course, it's like, you're not going to be the fungal infection until you have a dream. I'm like, oh, here we go with this shit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> because at the time, I wanted the answers. What, what do I want? What, do I, what can I take? And then I started to learn, like, when I deal with my clients now, I'm like, what is your dream? They're like, what, don't tell me about my dream. Tell me what, what herb do I take to get rid of this fungal infection? Because there's so much power behind the dream. I could teach you everything, but if you don't have a reason to change for it, you're never going to change. You know, the problem, as you surely know by now, with that whole model, I can tell you lots of things to take for a fungal infection or anything else. Mm-hmm. Problem is, is those are treating the symptoms of the fungal infection. Those aren't treating what led you to being immune compromised enough to be seen as an organism that isn't contributing to nature. Mm. You know, funguses, bacteria, and parasites do not play favorites. You're either vital enough to contribute or you need to be transformed into nutrients for those little beings that are contributing. So the question is, how did I get depleted enough, fatigued enough, and inflamed enough to be recognized as food for organisms that nature uses to dismantle the beings that are no longer capable of contributing to the growth and vitality of the world. And so 
if if a person does not have a dream bigger than their problem, then they don't have a reason to make the changes. So if you keep medicating yourself with cookies, junk food, alcohol, whatever it is that's medicating you to compensate for the story you keep telling yourself about why you have to do this or do that or why you can't do this or why you can't do that, then what happens is you're not actually addressing the story. You're addressing the symptoms of the story. So if you, you know, this is why I say if you have a big enough dream, you don't need a crisis. If a person does not have something to focus on that they want from their heart that inspires them to make the changes, to make sure that they're moving toward the realization of that expression of themselves, then the only thing they're living for is the very thing that's feeding the fungus, the parasites, and the bacteria. So now they work all day, but what they're really thinking about is their two glasses of wine in their soap opera, or their cookies, or their whatever it is, their coffee. The, you know, Maybe the only thing they get to celebrate life is the half an hour in the coffee shop with their friends before they go do something that they don't really want to do, but think they have to do because that's the way they've conditioned themselves to believe they're going to make money. So if you, if you don't anchor yourself in the dream, you only have one other option and that is to decide what the nightmare is. You know, if you, if you don't have a clear dream, then you got to figure out what your nightmare is and make that your dream. So if it's, I'm financially strapped all the time, then put your heart and soul into figuring out how to resolve that and look at what got you there so you don't keep doing it. But once you have a dream that's bigger than your crisis, now you have in what quantum physics is called an attractor factor. You have an attractor, sometimes a strange attractor it's called. So, you know, in your own story, you saw that you were reaching for basketball, reaching for football, reaching for, okay, I'm in pain now, what's next? So when you hold that image in your mind, you're actually creating a mental being called Nate Ortiz, who is in the mental dimension. And as you embody that idea with more clarity, okay, Nate's going to play basketball and this is how he's going to get there and this is who his coach is going to be and he's going to get the scholarship. Every time you do that, it starts having more mass, more mental mass. Mass has inertia. It draws things to it, right? All you got to do to prove that to yourself is take a quarter, a nickel, and a dime and put them in a triangle shape and then hang a pendulum right in the middle of them and it'll start swinging but it'll always swing most toward the biggest coin, second most toward the smallest coin, and least most toward the littlest coin. Because mass has gravitational influence, and the pendulum's feeling the pull of the mass. So if you then say, okay, I'm creating mass in my mind, it actually starts pulling on you, just like that quarter pulls the pendulum more than a nickel or a dime. And so that becomes an attractor factor. So what you're doing is each day you're breathing into, you're becoming more and more. So the strange thing is you're developing the future Nate in your mind, but then you're 
emulating that idea, so you are actually adding the mass in your physical life that you're also adding with your mental clarity. And so the psyche dresses itself in the dream. And that's how a mind works. And the entire universe is the physical manifestation of God dreaming. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's deep. That's the truth. God's not thinking it into existence because to think you have to have a duality. And since God is a unity, see, for me to think, I have to think about something. Mm-hmm. But if you're God, there's nothing to think about because there's nothing but you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So God, zero, unconditional love, one, the unity, being and non-being, two, duality, mind. So God has nothing to love, so it looks into itself and begins to dream just like you did. And it dreams, I think I would like to try coming from some really unfortunate circumstances and to make it so I truly understand everybody. I think I'll take on a biracial body and I'll start in an environment that makes it really clear for me what doesn't work for the long run and I'll give myself some circumstances to let me know when I'm moving in the wrong direction. And so every being from the microorganisms in the soil is God dreaming part of its own unfolding. Mm -hmm. And since that's been going on for infinity, we think the universe is 13 point something billion years old, but that's just the newest edition of the dream. Mm -hmm. That's you know, you can't use time when you're talking about God. That means you're still stuck in your head. The point being, though, God dreams itself into existence so that it has something to love because God, by definition, is that for which there is no other. So God can't love anything but itself. So God dreams Nate into existence and recognizes Nate in the dream and said, oh, look at my beautiful dream. This guy's going to help a lot of the pieces of me that don't realize they have a, a a key role in my play. And so there's this relationship. Now here's where the magic starts. The moment God recognizes Nate in God's dream and begins to communicate with Nate, now there's a lover and a beloved. And the moment Nate recognizes himself or anyone else in the dream, now you have a flow of energy and information from Nate to the beloved, which is his beloved, which is God, or to anybody else. Mm -hmm. And that's how a mind is born. Mm. Whenever two characters in the dream recognize each other and begin to share love, the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self or other, you have mind. So when God looks into God's dream, God has nothing else to love but his dream or her dream, God, it, its dream. And so the instant God recognizes itself, there's a connection made, but 
the God falls in love with God's own illusion and says, oh, I love Nate. And by loving Nate, there's a relationship created which causes a mind. And so what happens is the two co-create together, right? So when I wrote that, did the painting for you and, and wrote the letter, I actually just said to God, which part of me am I painting for? Which is which part of God? And what am I supposed to say to this part of me right now? And so I just transcribed. But the, the key point here is God cannot mind until God dreams because there's nothing to mind until there's a dream. And you can't have a mind without a duality. And the duality is an illusion because if God is God, there is no way to have a duality. You understand that? If God is everything and everyone, then there is only a unity. So the illusion is the duality. But without the duality, you can't have a sense of self, right? Without duality, I couldn't be interviewing you. I'd be interviewing myself. And God would have nobody to love. So paradoxically, the nature of relationship is that it allows love to exist. And if you didn't have an ego, how could your girlfriend love you? And if you didn't have an ego, how would you know it was you loving her? So the paradox of all this is, is that love and mind are basically mirrors of each other. And if you don't like what's in your mind, then change what you love. And that's why the dream is ultimately an expression of the love that inspires your mind to create something more beautiful than what you created last time. Mm. And that's the secret man my brain is twisted right now <laughs> well you know the thing is as deep you know here's the secret stop using your brain mm. if you just listen with your heart when i say that you're here because god dreamed you into existence so that god could have love and co-create with you and that whatever you dream becomes a magnetic force that draws you toward it to the degree that you are honest about that dream and in that process, God is co-creating itself with you because God needs to have love because there is no one for God to love unless God creates companions to love. So God creates the illusion of separation so that God can love unconditionally. The condition that's the illusion is Nate, Paul, girlfriend, mom, dad, brother, sister, bad guy, good guy. <clears throat> and so that's the illusion. But the illusion allows us to become aware of our role in the unfolding of God. Because without this, God cannot know itself. So the universe is a living mirror of God. And everybody in it is God. And the reason your mind has a hard time wrapping itself around that is because you're thinking. And if you're thinking, you're engaging the duality. But if you just listen to your heart, you connect to the unity. You, you see the difference. That's the difference between love and thinking. Thinking is just information but love is about a relationship 
you, you, there's a big difference. Yeah, 100%. You can think all day long about, you know, how fast an electron moves around an atom or how you're going to mobilize somebody's spine, but it may not make you feel more connected. But if you come to the realization that you couldn't be here without the birds, the bees, the flowers, and the trees, you can say, wow, that's a lot of love out there. And then the love will take you to where you need to go to co-create with your mind so that your mind is actually being used to create more love instead of just more goddamn information. (laughs) 